You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Aria Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Tommy Craggs. Uh, Tommy, could you please introduce, introduce yourself? Hi, uh, thank you. I am um, the enterprise editor at Mother Jones, um, and uh, I've been there a couple years now. Uh, so thanks for coming on. Uh, so we're we're going to be talking about an article that you published in Mother Jones. The headline is "What's the Matter with Cultural Politics?" and the subject head is "It's Not Just the Economy Stupid." Um, and uh, we'll include the link on the blog site for people who want to find it. Um, so the the piece interested me uh, as someone who's interested in you know sort of cultural politics and also. I guess my kind of my view of politics is also sort of shaped by a sort of vulgar Marxism of a kind that maybe you critique in the piece. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, but, and you kind of, I don't know, there's a synthesis that you're proposing between these, between these things sort of explaining American politics, but sort of the, 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 the thing that you're arguing against is this idea that a lot of um, sort of center left types have been propounding for since the election, but also for a long time. And, um, and that's that, you know, the, the Democrats did badly because they're too focused on cultural issues and not on economic issues or bread and butter issues, meat and potatoes issues. And you quote some of the people who've been arguing this, like uh, former Senator Claire McCaskill and the comedian Bill Maher. And, and you, you mentioned what's the matter with Kansas, this book that I think it came out in 2004. Yeah. Um, and I remember reading it when it, came out and found it very interesting. Um, and of course, so your title plays on that. Uh, so that's sort of the, it's in some ways, even though it's funny that even though Biden won, you know, sort of like the, the left side of the spectrum is engaging in like an autopsy, trying to figure out like, how did it all go wrong? And the right side actually, which lost, you know, at least lost at the top of the ticket is like Trump leading the way saying actually he won. So there's a weird, um, something weird about that. But, um, the I guess Biden didn't win a landslide, and uh, the Republicans did well below the ticket. So there, there's some reason for the Democrats to have a sort of, you know, autopsy type thing <laughs> happening. But what's your so what what is your critique? First of all, did I did I explain the sort of centrist view correctly? And what's your critique of it? That's that's right. And I would say also, you know, as you you mentioned, Tom Frank and what's the matter with Kansas? It's not limited to um, sort of the center left. I think this is also something that people on the left have been saying. Um, There is like actually uh, this sort of weird transpartisan consensus on on this sort of thing, on the idea that um, that Democrats are uh, talk too much about you know, now now it used to be political correctness. Now it's still political correctness. But we also talk about wokeness. Um, there are a lot of different code words and a lot of different um, I mean, trans issues come come up quite a bit. Uh, obviously, this comes up with respect to um, police abolition, um, Black Lives Matter, uh, defund the police, that sort of thing. But, yeah, the, the, the basic idea there, the basic criticism that is being made is that Democrats cost themselves votes by talking about wokeness and, um, you know, issues of identity and, cult, you know, what we, what we might call cultural politics. Um, and this has been, 
you know, this, this note, you see it over and over, um, after wins, after losses, it comes up over and over again. Um, basically since, you know, I think going back like half a century now. Um, and so the piece was like, the piece kind of grew out of, I mean, specifically it grew out of having MSNBC on for two weeks straight (laughs) right around the election and just (laughs) hearing people hit this note in different ways over and over and over and seeing people I generally agree with. And I, I, I find myself agreeing with, um, sort of, you know, enthusiastically, um, you know, retweeting or whatever, Andrew Yang talking about this sort of thing. Um, and so that, that like gave me a lot of pause and that, um, just generally made me sort of annoyed. I think I, like you, I had read the Tom Frank thing in 2004, and that felt like, at the time, that felt like the skeleton key to American politics. I thought, like, this guy has it all figured out. And I think, uh, you know, in the last, you know, 15, 16 years, I've, like, basically come to the realization that he had it he had it very wrong. And, and in fact, you know, Tom Frank's kind of politics are you know, a, a constitutive, uh, element in this like stalemate that we all, I think we all feel, um, this just sense that we are going nowhere. Um, and so the piece that I guess, the, you know, you just, you, uh, very nicely described it as an attempt at a synthesis was like, um, trying to find some way out of this stalemate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so thinking back to, you know, Frank's book. So it must have come out either. He wrote it before the 2004 election or it actually came out before the 2004 election. So either way it was, it, it, but it seemed to explain what had happened where a lot of people, a lot of Democrats thought we're going to, you know, we're putting it all on the line to, to take Bush out. And then, you know, he won rather handily, uh, won reelection, uh, you know, increased his margin over uh, 2000 when he, you know, didn't win the uh, plurality, plurality vote. Uh, even I think he won like fifty point one percent, and but anyway, and and that was when gay marriage um, was first like on the ballot in different states and in Ohio, and it kind of did seem like you know the the Democrats. So the thesis is like, why do you know a, a state like Kansas that used to be a, like a breeding ground for radical you know people a hundred years ago, why are they now like it's either wacko far-right conservatives or, like, moderate conservatives winning every time, and as I, as I recall, it was, like, you know, the the people will vote against their true economic interests because they are fooled into, uh, you know, through culture war demonization or racial demonization or something to side with, the you know, the the side of capital instead of the, the side of labor, so something like that. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I guess the, like, that's, that's one thing I should say about my piece is that uh, you know, that that tendency to kind of uh, cleave um, politics into like material, material versus cultural and, and material versus this sort of ineffable, um, you know, identity, cultural stuff. That's like that's what Frank was was doing. And I think what what I'm trying to argue in the piece is that, like, there are, um, you know, there you can't really separate those two things that there are material dimensions to these cultural issues 
um, you know, there are there are material consequences to being able to to marry your partner. And like in, in especially in the case of trans issues, there are very, you know, there are very clear material dimensions to, um, you know, the subordination of trans people in America right now. Um, you know, if you just look at some of the surveys and their salaries and, um, you know, the the likelihood that they get fired, all these things have very clear material dimensions. And so, yeah, that was the other part of the thing my piece was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's let's uh, bracket the trans aspect of this, because in some ways, maybe the, you know, the the role that the trans issue or uh, to talk about it in sort of a blunt way, like is playing these past five years, like the role that is played that like the gay marriage issue played you know, 15 years ago. Um, but you, 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 so what of what are the points, but let's bracket that for now, but you, you mentioned that, you know, um, abolish the police or defund the police. A lot of people, on the like more center left side of the party are blaming those sorts of activists for the down ballot losses. I don't know if there's any way this will ever be proven. Um, but in places that had, you know, very strong, like, uh, black lives matter, rallies or movements or even like violence caused by protesters or looters or rioters, or whatever, like th- those aren't the areas that shifted, you know, I don't think, uh, but, but you, you note that defund the police that, I mean, that's an economic argument. Um, yeah. and that's core, like defund, we're talking about money here and the, and then taxpayer money, uh, nonetheless. Uh, so there's that, but of course there's also like, you know, the sort of civic religion of policing that has like grown even stronger as, as the counter, the counterweight to the black lives matter movement where, people, you know, are flying, uh, those blue stripe flags and right. it's, it's, it's beyond, it's beyond just sort of a, you know, a budgeting issue. It's like, what sort of, what sort of America do we have issue? Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and I think like the, the, the history of the law and order turn, um, r- really bears out the, like, you know, the, the idea that there are, there are both like at once cultural and material dimensions to, to policing. Um, I think in the piece, I quote um, a Senator um, uh, McClellan from, from the sixties sort of inveighing against um, all at once. It's he's talking about socialism and creeping communism, but also like this threat of, of civil rights protesters and, and, and violence surrounding them. Um, And, He's he's talking about all these things at basically the same time in this in this quote. Um, and this was I, I read this in a in a great piece um, that kind of gets at at some of the ideas here in the context of policing uh, uh, by David Stein uh, and I, I can't remember where it appeared, but um, that is certainly worth reading um, because I think that really zeroes in um, on just like the unity of material and cultural issues. Um, but yeah, like the, it was, there's a clip that I included in the, in the piece that's Bill Maher talking about, um, you know, all these instances of Democrat, of, of sort of democratic and left overreach. And he, he drops, um, you know, defund the police into this litany. Uh, and it's, it's like, when you start to think about it, it like, you know, it, it kind of, um, you don't really pick up on it because we're, we hear this so much, but when you actually start to think about it, like this is a, this is a very, this isn't just, um, you know, some instance of like, you know, cancel culture run amok or whatever. This is like a very, um, like 
material demand. It's, it's like you may not agree with it. You may not think it's a good idea, uh, but it is it's not like it is a material thing. It is a material claim. Um, and it was sort of telling just to see him talk about it in such a you know dismissive way. Right. Um, OK, so do you do you uh, are you do you agree that defund the police may have hurt the Democrats? Or are you agnostic or do you disagree? Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't really care. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, um, I don't, I don't think, I mean, you know, I, I, I try, I don't think I, I articulated this very well, but I, in the piece, but I do think there is this, like, just the whole idea of a backlash is, um, kind of a, a misconception. And it's one of these metaphors that, um, that actually obscures more than it clarifies. I mean, the, the whole idea of a backlash you know, comes from this, you know, like it's a mechanical metaphor, right? Like one part of a machine, um, you know, at odds with some other part of the machine. And in the case of something like policing and just, you know, in general, just the subordination of of other, you know, some classes to the the prerogative of another class, like that's not just a part of the machine in America. That is what the machine does. And um, this, this idea of backlash of like two different parts, uh, you know, constituent parts sort of, uh, clashing against each other. That's not actually what, what a backlash is describing. The backlash is describing is like the privileged class sort of reasserting or asserting itself, uh, and, you know, um, you know, and asserting its dominance again. Um, so yeah, the, like, I, I just, I have a hard time, um, kind of teasing apart, well, what's what's backlash and what's just, you know, um, what's just a thing America has always done over and over? Um. OK, well, yeah, I mean, the, the the backlash understanding of politics is, I guess, is would you characterize it as, as the mainstream understanding, like the average MSNBC pundit? Like that's the that's the filter through which they. uh they view politics. Yeah. It's like, you could try to do something and it'll help these number of people, but it might piss off these other number of people. And then you got to decide whether, you know, it's worth helping the people over here. If it's going to piss off the people over there, if they're going to like get mad at you and vote you out of office or, or something like that. Yeah. And I think specifically it's, it's sort of the product of, of indexing your politics to uh, like very particular kind of voter uh, and the like, sensitivities of a particular kind of voter. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the per, you know, when, um, Clara McCaskill talks about losing some voters, you know, she doesn't need to say what she has in mind for you to envision. You know, she's talking about white people, mostly, you know, white people in the Midwest. Um, she's talking, at once about working class white people and middle class white people, which is a, another thing that happens in this discourse is this like uh, sort of slippage uh, between working class and middle class. Um, right. But yeah, in this, like the idea of, of backlash is sort of comes out of this like larger idea of, of seeing those people at the center of, of American politics. Right. And so you, I mean, you also discuss, yeah, a term, the term you use is stalemate, um, and a, there's a kind of, like, austerity, um, you know, mindset, even if not, like, literal austerity, just, like, sort of, I don't know, the idea of, like, there's only so much bandwidth, or there's only so much stuff we can do, 
And yeah, if you do too much, then there's going to be a reaction. And and I don't know. I maybe I I I, I don't know. I I can't uh, I can't decide whether I agree with your critique or not. I mean, like when, just looking at sort of things that have been proposed, like that probably won't even happen. But who knows? So one of them would be like this idea that. Biden, through some sort of executive order, can cancel some amount or maybe all student debt because the debt is actually like held by the federal government, and they just will say like, okay, we're you know this is forgiven, and then suddenly you know millions of people out there who borrowed money to uh, pursue education don't have to pay you know a hundred or a couple hundred bucks per month. Um, so seemingly there's no like losers from that because the loser is the federal government. You know, their loans aren't going to be paid back, but the federal government can create money by pressing a button, so it doesn't really matter. But, you know, just looking on Twitter, which is a, a weird subsection, but anytime this idea is proposed, there's, like, people who are like, I scrimped and saved, I had two jobs, you know, I was working the night shift at the diner and stealing glances at my law, you know, my law book so that uh, I could pay, I could, like, graduate with no student debt, blah, blah, blah. Like, why do you deserve to to get like this freebie and like it just it just riles people up even even when they didn't like they didn't they're not losing anything it's just like they didn't get something that wasn't possible at that time but still it really it really pisses people off so can we yeah. can we break out of how can we possibly break out of this mindset when even it's not like we're even taking something from these these people who you know graduated from college 20 years ago it's just like they get mad because they see someone else get free ice cream yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess part part of the thing that um, I'm I'm sort of advocating here is just is you know by by catering to that kind of like conception of like hydraulic politics, you know, one goes up here, goes down here, um, you know, you're just uh, you know you're you're just sort of reifying the the problem, right? Um, and I guess like the the thing that I, I keep thinking and, and, you know, in, in where I sense like the energy going in, um, in politics is to these ideas that break out of this like hydraulic conception. Um, and so it's like, it's MMT right now. And it's like, it's, so that, that's mo- modern monetary theory. Yeah. Um, which is like having, having a bit of a moment and, uh, like, if you if you fall deep enough into it, uh, it kind of you it like has a, it becomes a sort of metaphysics and uh, almost like hits these notes that I imagine sort of new age hit in in the 70s and I and I'm not saying that in a in a bad way like it it is offering a way out and like MMT offers a way out. Uh, okay, so what, you, just for people who don't have never heard of it and I know the basics of it but don't really understand it, can you just give a brief definition of what of what modern modern monetary theory is well i think i think um you know it has uh it has a lot of you know sort of uh satellite ideas and there's like a theoretical end of it and a humanities end of it but the basic conceit is that um if you are if you are a you know um if you are producing a sovereign you know you have a sovereign currency and you're producing your own currency uh, you're not going to run out of money, and it, and um, essentially money is uh, is infinite and has infinitely creative capacities that um, have been obscured by um, 
and this is this is this is where I think you'd you'd rather talk to somebody in the MMT world, but obscured by this kind of conventional history of money as this uh, unit of barter, uh, they they sort of um, they rely on this like anthropological history that that like David Graeber um, popularized in his book Debt. Um, uh, and uh, there are there are like really fascinating sort of downstream implications of this idea that money is infinite. And like there are there are wonky considerations here that are way beyond my capabilities of understanding about like how you control like what sort of levers you work to control inflation, all that stuff. That's not the part that like I mean I really can't grasp any of that. But the part that really interests me is this idea of uh, you know of um, like breaking out of this these I, these conceptions of, of scarcity and politics. Um, you know, sort of hemmed in by these ideas of scarcity that like I, you know, I grew up with anybody who's like been on the left in the last 15 years is, is like, um, you know, knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's like there it's just um, and certainly anybody who's been on the left for longer than that. Um, and so MMT does I think part of the popularity of MMT is that it it does offer a way out. Um, right. So so I th- just to recapitulate, I think as my understanding is, you know, the traditional idea was that if you print too, if the government prints too much money, eventually you get inflation. And then in the most extreme example, you have like, uh, you know, Zimbabwe or something where people are carting around billions of paper dollars to buy food. Um, but the, the challengers to this idea are saying that like, if you control your own currency, then really there is no limit on the amount of money you can put out without getting inflation and the fact that there has essentially been zero inflation um, since the uh, Great Recession is maybe is maybe a point in favor of this theory. Although I know that there's like liberal and left economists who reject this this yeah. idea. Yeah, um, but I you know I think I think it is um, you know trying to get at why it's having a moment right now beyond beyond just like sort of the wonk, the wonky end of it. Um, I think is, is really important. And, and similarly, and I think relatedly, um, you know, just abolition as a conceptual framework, uh, beyond just police abolition, but like, um, abolition and, you know, this, this idea of, of, um, you know, I, I use the phrase at the end of the piece, this all at once-ness kind of comes from just things I've been reading about abolition and abolition as a conceptual framework. Um, I think these this is this is where the energy is going because these are the these are the ideas that seem to break the stalemate uh, and that like move outside of it or seem to operate kind of outside of it. Um, and I guess where I start to despair is where is where like um, we just still feel caught in the same kind of discourse that we've had for 30, 40 years. Um, and so that was like sort of the impulse behind the piece. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and, and certainly the, um, you know, the uh, coming Biden administration uh, does not seem likely to break the uh, break us out of whatever right. paradigm we were we were in before. You know, I'm thinking, um, you know, one another uh, word you could use to describe this sort of mindset is uh, zero sum. And the uh, Robert Wright, who created this website, he wrote a book called Non-Zero in the late 90s. That's about, uh, you know, how non-zero sum relationships 
uh, which are like mutually profitable for both sides. You know, there's a sort of a logic to those flourishing uh, in certain ways, um, in a way that a just a zero, uh, a plain zero sum relationship, um, you know, uh, one side wins and one side loses. Um, and yeah, but but you know, in in that conception, a you know most exchanges under capitalism are non-zero because someone gets you know a good in exchange for money or whatever. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how that fits in. But um, okay, so I think one of the um, you know sort of the 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 thing that aside like if George Floyd had not been murdered by that cop. Um, then, you know, the summer would have been different, but, um, maybe the thing that would have, uh, gained attention as sort of the, like, the thing that Claire McCaskill would have been talking about was, is trans issues, and even just the fact that I'm calling it trans issues, like, is a, a way of, like, sort of setting the terms of this, but I, I mean, I, I do, so in what, in some ways, like I said, the trans, like, trans stuff is, the, the like next generation or sequel to the gay marriage debates, which are now like pretty much firmly settled. And probably most people don't even who, you know, think or care about that anymore, even though it seemed like a huge deal in 2006 and like Obama opposed it originally and et cetera, where now it just seems like settled, even though it was only five years ago, the Supreme court, um, you know, made uh, gay marriage uh, legal nationally. It almost seems like of a different world settled issue, whatever, much to do about nothing almost. Um, but I don't know, like, it does, so, it does seem like trans issues are more, like, prevent, present a bigger challenge to, like, the conventional way of life, the, like, bread and potatoes, um, you know, or meat and potatoes uh, way of life than letting gay people get married or serve in the military uh, ever really did, because in, in a lot of ways those were sort of, like, bringing a disenfranchised group into, like, the establishment uh, sort of thing. Like, is there anything more conservative than, uh, than getting married? Like, it's 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 a, something funny duddies do. So, um, whereas, I don't know, like, uh, the emergence of, like, the, the rhetoric around trans issues, I'm trying to say this carefully, of course, it, it just, it, it, like, challenge, challenges conventional thinking much more, and suddenly... You know, uh, if you grew up thinking there were two genders, well, maybe you're wrong and maybe you're a bigot for thinking that way. Um, the thing is, there's not like, you know, most national politicians are not really paying attention to this stuff in any way. Maybe um, I think Elizabeth Warren said something like she would ask a uh, trans a school child to pass, you know, pass judgment on her education secretary or something strange like that. Um, but and then sometimes basically it just seems like most of the um, like elected officials are mostly just sort of like you know, flattering or appeasing an interest group in the way they talk about this stuff. And there's, and they're not really going after the material demands, like covering like surgery and health insurance and, and stuff like that, that might actually upset things. Then you have things like Tulsi Gabbard just a couple of days ago, and now she was sponsoring a bill that would, I guess, uh, you know, like prevent trans children from participating in sports or something along those lines. I don't know the details of it. Um, yeah. So, so, do you do you agree with me that like the, like this this is somewhat different and it's not just like oh those gay people they're gross they're weird I don't want to deal with them uh, so mean, like simple, I, simple prejudice I think to the to the extent that it is like a direct challenge to you know um, this conception of a gender binary and 
like that is kind of central to um well just uh it's central to a lot of uh you know a lot of ideology and and also forms of oppression um i think yeah like for sure and that and i guess that's one thing that i i keep thinking about is you know the 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 people who don't see these neat divisions between the cultural and the material the people who like who actually understand this like kind of all at onceness and understand that there are that like oppression happens um along you know different axes in in acts in different ways like the people who understand that the best are the right um and uh that to address it i think you can't just you can't just concede um altogether i mean that they are that's uh you know, that's that's the turf on which you have to, like, fight this particular fight. Um, and it is, um, you know, I guess it's it's just it's strange to me to see uh, so many people ready to concede altogether. Um, uh, you know, particularly people on the left. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. I guess I'm not really uh, engaging with your your question there. Well, because- I- I think, like, you know, the the gay marriage fit within the Thomas Frank formulation uh, in a pretty easy way where it's, like, let's rile up the, like, you know, uh, hillbillies or whatever with this idea that, like, gay people are coming to, like, convert their children. Uh, And really, you know, their life is not affected by gay marriage, you know, in any way whatsoever. But we're going to get them, like, onto our side by demonizing this, like, persecuted minority. So that, like, and that fits within it. I, but I'm not sure if if trans issues fit within that in the same way. I mean, yeah, okay. So the you know, the gender binary is like is a uh, central to a lot of life, and it's certainly like uh, it's more central to life in general than like uh, racial uh, categorizations are. I would say, um, and yeah, it just it seemed like it, it does seem like a more radical thing than just saying like. Uh, black people should be able to vote, you know, without uh, the the state trying to impede it, or gay people should be allowed to uh, get married. Um, it's just you know, like it. I don't know, it, but anyway, but I, I I still almost, but it still almost is like like what what is the percentage of people who are trans? I don't know. It's like one percent or something. It's it's smaller than the number of people who are gay, and it it, it still does in some ways it still does fit within that like here is this group like you like middle America in, in quotes should be afraid of them. And, you know, I, I will like protect you. I, the GOP congressman will like protect you from whatever crazy stuff like these people want to do to your children. Yeah. I mean, and I guess I, I, I do want to emphasize sort of in line with, with what I'm, with what the piece is arguing that the, there, this, you know, I just would not accept the, the the Tom Frank formulation that this is like about whipping up um, whipping up fears and you know um, uh, like uh, inflicting false consciousness on the rubes or whatever. That like, and I and I think I think it, that that element is actually clearer um, with with you know some of the like the trans panic um, because that is, you know, the, there are, I think we all kind of accept on some level that there are, there are like material dimensions to the gender binary. And, 
um, that has like real material ramifications. I don't think that's like, uh, I think that's obvious to, to anyone. Um, and so I think like what, um, you know, what the, the, the trans issue actually is, um, you know, the, the way it, it is both cultural and material at once is like much clearer, I think, than, you know, maybe, you know, maybe with gay marriage, um, I'd be curious, I would actually be very curious to hear, um, you know, some of the, the people who are involved in the gay marriage push over the two dec you know, the, the decade and a half, uh, that it took to happen, um, where they would see the parallels, um, and where they wouldn't. Right. And so the, when you said that the first person who popped to my mind was Andrew Sullivan, who, um, you know, uh, wrote the New York Public cover story or whatever, 1989 or something, uh, about uh, gay marriage and was you know pushing for it for a number of years. I don't quite know where he um, where he falls on the trans issue, but I have a feeling that um, he's not super sympathetic. But you know he's kind of taken a reactionary turn um, yeah. in the past couple of years, anyway. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit more about like culture, culture and material materiality, uh, which is interesting to me because as I, I host a podcast about culture, I enjoy, I enjoy culture. I'm a, you know, culture, culture lover, but also I think a lot about how like material, the material conditions influence culture. So one example I just heard on a podcast yesterday, this is the feminine chaos podcast, which formerly was on this site is now has spun off onto their own. And so they were talking about, they're talking to Jessica Crispin, who was the uh, founder of book slut, uh, the very early online book magazine, and the question was, why do a lot of, like, best-selling novels these days seem like they're actually, like, written for children? And she was saying that it's because the authors know that they want their book to get optioned by Hulu or Netflix for a series. And so you need, for something like that to happen, you need a sort of straightforward hero, straightforward villain, maybe some science fiction-y or fantasy elements to it, and then you're more likely to... Um, to or just make it more like you know like a movie and it's more likely to be picked up because you know, like books are, don't sell as well as uh as they used to uh but hulu and netflix and hbo and amazon will pay a lot of money for that so i don't know if that's accurate but it's an interesting way to think about how material conditions are are shaping the culture um how do you see you know I, I, since you are sort of rejecting the Bi the binary uh, to me of rejecting binaries uh, between culture and material um, facts. How do you see these things interacting? Does does culture flow from material materiality, or is it embedded within it inextricably, or, or how do you view it? Um, well, I guess I guess um, one. It might help to talk a little bit about how you know just I like sort of arrived at the, and I, and I want to emphasize, like, I'm not offering a sort of counter, uh, like reductionism to counter what, you know, the, the economic reductionism or whatever, uh, you know, this isn't, I'm not saying privilege the cultural realm over the economic. It's, it's that these realm, these realms are right on top of each other. Um, but I, I think it, it might help to sort of talk about how I can, I, I arrived at this and like, I, I, you know, I've definitely seen my own sort of left politics evolve over the years. But I, I think one, um, you know, I've, I've been working in media, I've worked in media my whole life. Um, and, you know, in the last few years, there've been these organizing efforts, I tried to organize a union at Slate. Um, and I've been part of like, also, um, just sort of organizing within, um, 
um, within these publications, not necessarily union drives, but also union drive. Um, and it's been really instructive to me to, to watch, watch, um, you know, watch organizing from the inside. Um, and you know, a lot of these drives and a lot of like just radicalism within media outlets, like, uh, like where do they start? They, I think if you talk to people who've organized drives or it's at least have, have been inside media companies that organize, I think you'd find that a lot of, a lot of these initial conversation happen, like it happens in the women's, the, the women's only Slack channel where they do, they do the salary reveal and they start to realize like just how badly they're getting screwed. Uh, and, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, half Korean and I've been part of the, you know, sort of POC groups at publications and, you know, been part of like sort of, you know, you know, writing letters to the bosses about addressing POC issues. Um, and I've watched how that organizing takes shape and you see people through these channels of, of, um, identity developing what I think we would call you know, sort of a labor consciousness and, and, and starting to like see themselves as workers through these, like, you know, through these, like literally Slack channels that are, are that are devoted to, you know, identity. Uh-huh. And that was like, really, that's been a really eye-opening experience for me. And, and I think if you look at where some of the, you know, beyond media, look where some of the effective organizing has been, I mean, look at Google, uh, where, you know, as far as I know, there wasn't a ton of energy around organizing internally until, and and if my history is wrong here, somebody should correct it. But um, in response to that, that um, James Damore, the the fired for truth guy, right? Uh, what happened to that guy? I haven't heard anything from him in a long time. Uh, but th- like, I think some of the first real, like at least uh, attempts at organizing that that uh, and actual effective organizing that took place at Google. Uh, at least from an outsider's perspective, happened uh, in response to that. Again, organizing, you know, solidarity developing around issues of identity, issues of identity interlocking with people's sense of themselves as workers in a particular context. Um, Or you look at um, more recently and back in media, but I think this was a significant moment at the New York Times, um, you had the op-ed editor get tossed out on his ass because of an organizing effort of um, black New York Times reporters and editors um, who couched their concerns about the Tom Cotton op-ed in terms of like, you know, sort of a traditional workplace safety complaint. They said that the the tweet that that they all sent out said that this op-ed made them feel less safe. I don't remember the exact wording. Yes, plus something like black, this makes black employees of the New York Times feel unsafe or something like that. Um, and so here was like here, and that's the New York Times. I mean, New York Times, like when was the last time have you ever seen anything like that happen at the New York Times? Uh, it was, to my mind, one of like the more significant labor victories. And I don't, it wasn't, it, it was certainly in like the part of the left I see on Twitter. Uh, you know, I saw people sort of making fun of it um, when this was like this was a worker. This was a big worker victory. They got, uh, you know. Um, uh, James Bennett, uh, they like they got his ass out of there uh, by organizing. They got a boss's ass out of there by organizing. <laughs> right. Like, that is well. That they, is, okay. 
Okay, so you're celebrating this, and the person on the other side might say, well, this is cancel culture run amok. Um, yeah. But let me just, yeah, it's all, you've said a lot of interesting stuff here. I mean, one is that the, um, you know, sort of a technological determinism aspect to it. There's this, pro, there's this new software that's like Slate. Essentially, it's just like chat rooms or message boards, and that's been around for a long time. But that enables uh, people to, uh, employees to talk to each other in a way they couldn't because the boss was maybe lurking around the corner or something, or just have more frank or more online style conversations. And then eventually maybe they start talking about their salaries and they're like, Oh, we're shit. We're being underpaid. And then it's also interesting that, um, the, uh, group like affinity group kind of discussions lead to a like class solidarity because like the, I think the Orthodox Marxists would say that like the POC workers coming together is a form of false consciousness. And when they should all be uniting with everyone, you know, in their class, but it, but I guess this is, you know, it, it is interesting to think that it kind of like works. Like, I don't know, you need to unite around the Marxists would say maybe like they unite around the false consciousness and then the false consciousness dissolves. And then really everyone sees their, you know, that they're equal, uh, you know, in terms of, their class and they can band together against management or capital or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think that the traditional, uh, the, the traditional sort of white leftist view is that like organizing around, um, sort of race and identity just sort of deepens, uh, these like sectarian, these sectarian divisions, uh, and is sort of playing the boss's game. But I, I think what, what, what I'm trying to get at is that like, I mean, you think about organizing a workplace in general, um, you are you are organizing different people situated differently within uh, this this workplace. The, the the whole goal is to identify, you know, um, common common enemy, common grievance, common sources of oppression, and common modes of redress. Uh, but you are talking to different people situated differently, and the idea that those differences are somehow like um, you know, those differences don't really matter, but like, uh, the, you know, differences created by, uh, you know, race and these like illusory cultural issues, like those are, those are significant and must be, must be observed and, you know, um, like transcended or whatever. And not, not like, um, you know, just like, just, you know, challenges to any kind of, uh, you know, workplace organizing, um, I think that is like that is itself part of the problem. Um, that is an incredibly inarticulate way of, of putting it. But I but I think there's just this like overrating of certain kinds of differences that essentially uh, like reproduce like kind of larger racist ideas about the salience of race. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, it's um it, maybe it's that you know uh, as, as Americans we grow up with this ideology of that class doesn't actually exist in America and it's pummeled into us so strongly that like only you need to like do go, it's like a bank shot or something. You need to go in another direction before like the uh, class consciousness can emerge, emerge or something because yeah, we're just taught that this is like anyone can pull himself up by his bootstraps. And, you know, and of course there's been a lot of anti-union activism uh, in this country in the last 40 years. Um, but I, I think, you know, the, Okay, I don't know. I would celebrate James Bennett getting tossed on his ass because I thought he did a pretty bad job as the editor of the New York Times. And I thought that Tom Cotton thing should not have been run for 
I, I mean, my reasons for that, Tom Cotton can issue a press release and it can be covered by the news desk. He doesn't need the platform of the New York Times opinion page, which is the only opinion page anyone in America, or at least on Twitter, cares about. No one cares what's written in the, the Wall Street Journal opinion page, except for this <laughs> recent column about uh, Dr. Jill Biden. Uh, but but the, that's that's an exception. You, you know, people, the, people are obsessed with the New York Times op-ed page. But yeah, that piece, I don't think that piece should have been published because he could have just put it on a blog post on his website or or something and that that would have been fine but i also thought so i w- i was not shedding a tear um for for bennett but i also thought like the the rhetoric about how this is like makes it uh, uh, makes me feel unsafe or this is makes black uh near times employees feel unsafe i thought that was kind of like a bullshit move also um because like does it really like you're a times reporter and when you say unsafe that's what that's when like the hr managers start like perking up and like getting the lawyers like on the phone because an issue of safety is one that like a lawsuit can be, uh, you know, can be filed over and rhetoric, you know, there's all this conversation about rhetoric of safety and safetyism and stuff. But like, I don't know. I, I just like the reason not to run that piece aside from the fact that Tom Cotton doesn't need a platform. He has a platform as, as a U.S. Senator is that like, it was a horrible piece and it advocated for, you know, uh, the state to inflict violence upon protesters, not that, like, it made specific people feel unsafe in, in some attenuated way. Um, so, I, but it was almost like meeting bullshit with bullshit, and so, I don't know. I throw up my hands, I guess. Uh, I mean, I, I I have not talked to, like, my, my non-white friends there about that particular campaign, and so I'm not going to, like, I'm... Uh, not going to like make any judgment on the sincerity of it, but I, you know, I do think it was effective because it was couched in that way. And like you said, it, it pops different kinds of flags than just uh, like making the argument you made the, 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 you know, sort of straightforward argument um, like the editorial argument. That's just, um, you know, I don't think that causes the same sort of stir. No, it's it's not what gets attention these days in, in the existing media environment. It's just saying like, you shouldn't have published this because then people are like, what about free speech and everyone deserves to have their voice and so on. So yeah, catching it, like it was savvy, I think to what they did. Um, if, if their goal was to get Bennett out of there, I don't know if that was really, really their goal, but, um, uh, it, it could have been. And, and like I said, I think Bennett made a lot of like shitty choices in how he ran the page since he but took I, it over. I, I do. I also would not, um, you know, I would not, um, make too many assumptions about you know the the disingenuousness of of the claim of the claim like there are uh again like having uh, you know been in sort of poc groups within editorial operations uh like um i i don't know if there are cases where like people feel felt like immediately physically threatened but I, i i do think that this you know, some like the white the whiteness of these institutions does leave um, sort of POC reporters and editors feeling vulnerable uh, in a way that I think that campaign conveyed very effectively. Um, you know, I I I don't think the idea there is that they step they set foot out onto Eighth Avenue or whatever, uh, and and they're you know they're going to get punched or something. Um, I think it speaks to like. Uh, this like sort of general unease, which is like uh, like a physical unease of people being in these like in very white um, kind of media institutions with very white assumptions um, and 
with, you know, making very white decisions about whose lives they can be blithe about. So, yeah, and I'll, I'll just say, I, you know, arguing against my previous point, you know, I, I, you know, I can't speculate about what James Bennett or his editors were thinking, but it's almost, you know, there's a, there was a, there's a style of writing or opinion journalism that existed for a long time that was very much sort of like a, like playing a clever game and like, you know, Slate is, was maybe, <laughs> you know, took part in this for a certain percentage of its um, time where it's like, let's make a clever argument and maybe we don't really believe it, but like, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of funny and it's, it's counterintuitive and that's, you know, that's something valuable. And I guess this goes back to the New Republic, which we were discussing earlier and Robert Wright and Mickey Kaus, co-founders of this website, both worked there in the eighties, but that sort of like, you know, I mean, the, the piece that David Plotz wrote about how he hated pandas, that would be like the just silly version of this. But then like, did, did Bennett really like think about the fact that his, he was printing on his page, like saying like, you know, someone should like send in like tanks and people with, uh, and, and soldiers with like bayonets to confront the protesters. Like he probably, I, I doubt he really, well, he never read the piece we know. Uh, but, but also like, if anyone really stopped to think about that for a little bit, it would be not just be, it would be, it would move beyond sort of the intellectual game aspect of it towards, Oh, like if, if this really happened, then Americans would die. Um, and, and that's bad. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think in that case too, there's also the the old tradition of of you know publishing things by public official by public officials uh, and not treating them, you know, not holding them to the sort of standards you would hold anyone else that um, and that you're just a, a mechanism to convey some public figure's ideas about whatever and not like not that you have any duty to like edit or. Uh, sharpen those ideas right and it is i mean it, i think i've done episodes on this topic before uh, one with david cleon i'm remembering but like it is strange that uh you know the uh, speaking of material and technological conditions anyone can publish anything they want on a website or on facebook or something and like there's no it, it's no longer that the new york times owns the printing presses and the distribution channels such that they totally control um the conversation that is happening and yet that particular institution because of its history still is the one that like sets the agenda. It's so, like if Tom Cotton had published a Facebook post and what that was the exact th same thing, people would have made, it, it was the fact that like the thing that we all agree, even people who hate the New York times agree, like this is the important thing every day. They publish the important opinions that we all need to pay attention to. Like they were the ones who did this, uh, who gave it their imprimatur, even if they're like, we're airing all sides of this debate sort of thing like that. I think that was a key thing that, that, um, you know, set off the, the firestorm yeah. that, that resulted in Bennett resigning or getting fired. Um, yeah. But we've we moved we a little far field from, from the piece, but I, I want to ask um, about, well, why don't we talk about where you end this end the piece, which is with this um, uh, a, a scene that you witnessed in Oakland and involves this group called Moms for Housing. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and how, why you decided yeah. to end the piece with this tableau? Um, I mean, I guess like, you know, Throughout the piece, I'm I'm sort of describing, um, just you know, describing the stalemate and and sort of the, the politics of the stalemate. And you know, um, I had a long section on Stanley Greenberg, who's sort of the 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 guy behind Bill Clinton's you know, it's the economy, stupid, uh, and who also, and this is something I learned in reading about about him, uh, was also in the meeting where it was basically decided that he would he would take a run at that Clinton would take a run at sister soldier in, you know, what we now see as like this, this central, uh, 
event, um, you know, that, that your message of, of like, uh, your economic message has to come with this cultural message of repudiating, you know, uh, you know, certain black figures. Um, right. And which I thought was like a really significant, um, just the fact that the, it's the, it's the economy, stupid guy was also one of the sister soldier guys. That is, that is fascinating because yeah, the, I mean, sister soldier is such, has become such an iconic thing that people, I mean, uh, you know, people were saying that Biden needed a sister soldier moment, uh, for a long time. He, he never did in one anyway. So, so much for that, but yeah, it is, I mean, that, that is seen as sort of the iconic, you know, like sort of white person denouncing the black radical. So to signal to the white voters, like I'm, I'm basically on your side and I'm not going to put up with the nonsense, blah, blah, blah. And so, so I guess in, in, you know, doing the piece, it just, it felt like, I don't know. I, you know, it, I, too felt like I needed some way out, and you know Carol Fife is uh, she's a longtime activist in Oakland, uh, where I live, um, and she was in charge. She was one of the organizers of this Moms for Housing group, which I think um, staged one of the most significant um, direct actions in recent memory, where they basically just um, there was a, a house in Oakland. Um, that was vacant and it was owned by this, uh, these flippers, um, this, uh, real estate, you know, investment company. Um, and they just moved in, uh, they just moved into this house, occupied the house. Uh, there was, um, there was a big fight over this. They were, you know, there were eviction proceedings. The sheriffs showed up with a, with basically a tank and AR-15s, um, and eventually, uh, the governor intervened and, uh, the house was sold at a steep discount to the community land trust, um, on the condition that they, um, that they keep it affordable. Uh, and so Carol Five was instrumental in that. Um, and she was uh, then in the past year, um, she ran for, uh, Oakland city council and essentially on, you know, on an explicit on a pretty explicit abolitionist platform um, and drawing on a lot of the enthusiasm she, she created over the, the moms for housing stuff. Um, and so her candidacy was really exciting to me. I mean, what, what she did with the house itself was um, like really eye opening to me. And that was one of these moments that like felt like, um, like she wasn't going to take on the stalemate on its terms. Like, they're just going to move the moms in. The house is empty, uh, operating from the premise that uh, housing is a human right. She just claimed it. They claimed it. Um, and that idea of like a really simple and very elegant idea, uh, like unhoused people uh, deserve a house. Uh, that idea has spread. Uh, it spread to Minneapolis with the, the Sheraton Hotel um, where uh, in, this was in the aftermath of the of the first the initial Floyd protests uh, when this um, you know this this neighborhood near I guess was the third the third precinct I don't remember exactly but um, you know the, the where they had burned down the police precinct um, the hotel they it was a essentially essentially a sanctuary um, and it was um, you know sort of a, a the, Unhoused people moved in there. They had uh, sort of volunteers working at. Um, it was a Sheraton hotel, 
Um, and it worked um, for a brief period. It was actually, you know, a functional commune, essentially. Uh, there have been similar things in Philadelphia and L.A. And Fi so Fife, you know, Fife and, and the, the Moms for Housing sort of inspired this. Um, and that that to me is like like that's the kind of stuff that that like feels like a way out to me. I mean, obviously, these are these are sort of radical moves, but it's it's. It's just that the, um, you know, sort of the, the conception of politics that leads to those moves where, um, you know, it's, it is entirely outside of this, this sort of stalemated, um, these stalemated politics that we're so used to. Uh, and so I, you know, on, on the day they called Pennsylvania for Biden, I went to this rally of hers where she was thanking volunteers. And it's, I'm, you know, it was not like, it wasn't a, a, a sort of inspiring speech or anything like that. It was um, her just sort of laying out the the work that needs to be done. But it was interesting because it was it felt like really at odds with just the prevailing mood that day. Like people were dancing in the street. Uh, everybody was like buoyant and happy. And this is this was this was definitely happy. But it was also like uh, you know she named names she talked about you know Democrats uh, being part of the issue too and it was she went through this whole litany of things and I, I I just listening to it I could hear in my head the sort of the very like serious savvy pundits sort of tisk tisking her for like you know uh, like not not uh, slipping into the the like energies of the moment even though I think she was but also like uh, laying out these these issues that aren't popular and being just like too aggressive about certain things, um, but hearing her enumerate all these different things and sort of draw a draw like draw a line through them uh, and connect these things in a larger story about uh, about oppression, but also how to like how to extract ourselves from it uh, and how to overthrow it, like that was actually a very um, in its own way, moving um, and just experiencing that day and seeing that alongside, you know, sort of the the dancing in the street for Biden, like that was actually a really sort of moving, um, you know, just a moving day for me. Um, uh -huh. So that's that's where the piece ends. Um, I guess like the more prosaic way is she was presenting this kind of more prosaic way of talking about it is just she was presenting this sort of uh, intersectional story um, uh, about you know, um, uniting these, these like various issues. And, uh, but I think, um, you know, she, she has, she does it in a very effective way and is very, um, alive to these like, um, sort of overlapping dimensions that, that we're sort of talking about the cultural, uh, economic, uh, and doesn't feel that she needs to choose, uh, and that if she says talks about one, she has to talk less about the other, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, it's 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 interesting for the, and, and you describe it well, and it's interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, I mean, think about it, intersectionality was sort of a, a buzzword of four or five years ago, and then after Trump came in, I guess people kind of forgot about it because uh, it, it seemed I don't know it seemed like something of a previous era. But um, you know, the, the the core part of intersectionality, you know, makes sort of very logical sense that anyone can understand, and then maybe the you know people sort of apply to situations where it didn't apply or we're using it to like get some advantage, some sort of advantage over someone else. But anyway, I think what's interesting, I mean, the, you, you could imagine like the New York times reporting on this story or I don't know, opinion or straight news or news analysis or something, but they would be sort of like, 
well, I guess this had a, sort of a happy ending, and we're all good liberals, so we're all happy that these people like are inside of a house now instead of sleeping on the street. But like, you know, they they didn't really go by the rules, and they broke the law, and that wasn't good, and it required like Gavin Newsom to be shamed into doing something. So, yeah. So I mean, they went outside the normal conception, and like maybe in the in the normal conception, they all just would have been arrested and like thrown out or something, and you know, the house would have been locked up and put an armed guard or something there. Um, but their, so their radical action succeeded. So, and so that's, that's a good thing, but I can, I can, yeah, I can imagine the tutting and you said, you said, you said, tisking of the good liberals who are like, you know, why did you have to like break the law? Private property is the cornerstone of, you know, our system of whatever and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and yeah, so that's, that, that sort of action, is I mean yeah it, 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 it's a more radical action than marching in the street and saying Black Lives Matter or something because the, the things that have flowed from those protests are like we're capitalizing the word black in news articles and certain old sitcom episodes have like a warning label now before we show them or something like that whereas like you know taking a, a a piece of property that someone else owns and like saying it's mine now well that that is like truly radical and. Right. So the fact that it, it succeeded, well, I guess that's good, but it, it also like can if you can freak people out because uh, who's to say that next time it's going to be like an abandoned structure or something? Why yeah. not? You know, why not? How about all those um, skyscrapers that have been built in Manhattan that they are they were want to sell the units to Russian billionaires or something and and they're they're empty? Well, is yeah. that like, is that next? So these are these are the thoughts I've had <laughs> reacting to that. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't think anybody would deny that this was this was radical, but it proceeds from like a very simple and sort of, um, you know, like human and humane premise. Right. Which is that like housing is a human right. Um, and I think that's like I think that's a really important part of this. Um, you know, I, I you you were talking about intersectionality and I guess one 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 thing that I think is germane here is is that um i think there is a thing that happens among among the left where with like a uh sort of understandable impatience with the way with like the co-opted the kind of like liberal liberal the co-opted versions of of um you know the co-opted language uh racial justice uh, the co-opted forms of this kind of, of like cultural politics. And I think that impatience is totally justified, you know, sort of the HR-ish. Everybody has had the experience of sitting through like a, a HR software thing uh, and feeling just a little bit red-pilled by, by it. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, but I think uh, there's, you know, while that impatience might be sort of understandable, I think there's also this like eagerness or, or just hastiness to conflate the thing itself with its like co-opted kind of cheapened form that appears in, you know, sort of HR, HR world and sort of, um, you know, liberalism more broadly. Uh -huh. um, and I think, you know, intersectionality sort of fell victim to, to that sort of thing. But I think it gets at um, sort of an important idea and you, you know, there, there are different, uh, different phrases for it, uh, you know, targeted universalism and, um, uh, like I, I think that that idea gets at something essential to I think whatever whatever has to happen next this this whatever way out we we identify. 
Yeah, and and um, I, I you know it, it seems it's very uncertain. I was I was I predicted it was pretty certain that Biden was going to win and Trump was going to lose, but I've been thinking that you know Biden is probably not going to be able to accomplish much and things will pro- probably just be really boring and we're back to sort of stalemate instead of like insanity happening every day. And so I, I it, it might, I don't know, I, nothing radical. <laughs> maybe he will cancel everyone's student debt. Um, he doesn't seem like the type of person who would, but, but maybe, uh, you know, a, a lefty economic advisor will convince him to do it. And that would be, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's similarly radical in terms of, that's like something that is outside the the normal parameters of of the relationship between like the state and and the people and, and capital and stuff. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I'm not optimistic about radical change happening from the top. So maybe maybe it's a uh, it'll have to be uh, bottom up for at least the yeah. next four years. People moving into vacant houses. That's it. <laughs> yeah, and so I mean the um, the like both the overbuilding that has happened in various places in uh, over the past two decades. And then the like crisis of the, uh, of the pandemic and people not being able to pay the rent and just, uh, you know, the gross of the, 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 the increase in, uh, you know, the, just uh, homeless people in, in cities. Like, it seems like maybe this, this could be a, a could be a big thing. Um, so, yeah, so who knows, maybe. Um, uh, I, I, maybe we should end it there. Is there anything else you want to say about the piece? Um, okay, so uh, the link the link will be below on the blogging site. What's the matter with cultural politics is the headline if you want to Google it. Um, so, uh, Tommy, thanks for taking the time and coming on. It was a very interesting piece. And um, I encourage, I sent it around to a couple different people saying, what do you think about this thing? It's, it's making me think a lot. So, I, you know, uh, that that's, uh, you know... I, I feel like the you know the sometimes the the best like essays or something like pose the question not provide exactly the answer so I, I feel like this is one of those good pieces that like crystallizes the the question and then more you know we need to continue to think about what what the next step or what the answer is I know I'm go- I'm gonna spend the next however many years arguing with my own piece in my head so, <laughs> um, so uh, do, do you is there anyone anywhere you want to point people to for to seek out your content uh in general uh yeah uh read uh read mother jones subscribe to the magazine read uh motherjones.com okay cool and people can subscribe to this show uh in itunes or apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast app is uh and they can rate and review it and that helps other people find it you know everyone knows this already uh so tommy thanks for uh thanks for taking time and coming on and thanks to our viewers and listeners and we'll see you again next time Yeah, thank you.